So I'm here with Nick Fairbairn, CMO of Gabby. Nick, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Amazing. Well, wanted to jump right in with, um, you know, probably the the most important question that that I get asked um, when I talk about this CMO series is, what does a chief marketing officer do? How do you define your role? Oh God, I don't know. Um, I'm still figuring that out. I think the like the role of a CMO has evolved over time, and I think it means different things with different likes and kinds of company, different sizes of company, different you know focuses, B two B, you know, enterprise, channel driven. Um, but I think the the role of the CMO, to me at least, how I operate and have been in my career. Um, is more of kind of like a president meets brand marketer meets growth executive, right? So I think for me, the way I grew up was in media agencies as a performance marketer that then went in-house and learned brand and learned retention and kind of then put it all together. So when I go kind of talk about myself, I'm like, I'm that wonderful balance of you know performance meets brand. But typically most CMOs, at least when I was growing up in my career, came from brand, you know, brand management school at Procter and Gamble. And they, they have an amazing program and amazing people have come out of that. But as the D2C thing happened over the last 15, 20 years, this kind of performance, right? And this kind of analytics driven growth thinker um, has been heroed. But sometimes those folks lack some of the brand thinking. Um, and so I think today's CMO is thinking about kind of your brand in the market, your relationship with your consumers as a business, as well as driving the PL. Um, and the top line, but also, um, you know, the overarching revenue story. It, it's not just about, uh, you know, net new top line. It's about revenue um, and it's about relationships. And so I always think about regardless if it's a subscription business, an e-com business, whatever, it's about that relationship. And how do you kind of keep it and get more out of that same customer versus treat it transient? And so I think the role of the CMO is all those things I just rambled, but also a connector. Right within uh, the organization, like so. In my sense, we're a you know consumer-facing uh, digital product, uh, a shopping experience for home and auto insurance. It's my role to connect the marketing team with the product team, with the legal team, with the sales and service team, and kind of make sure it's all working together. Because for me to say I own conversion rate or I own you know CAC uh, is wrong. It, it's all a joint shared effort of the roadmap the product team's delivering to help unlock better conversion. The sales and service team, because we're selling insurance policies, um, helping nurture the client, ex- the customer experience, and such. So, I think the role of the CMO is is driving some of the vision, the brand, the relationships with the customers, but really connecting the internal um, spokes to make sure it all works in in tandem on behalf of the customer, driving the business forward. Yeah, I think it was uh, I think it was Accenture or someone like that who referred to the CMO as the connective tissue across the yeah. organization. Did, did you find, you know, as your teams went remote last year, did yep. that increase that component of your role of CMO? Like I know I've been totally. talking to a couple of CMOs who are also like suddenly became chief culture officers and also yeah. thinking a lot about internal comms too. What what what's been the shift for you? So interesting, this question. That's exactly what I would say me and a couple of the executives on on my team have done is culture has become 30% of my thinking, if not more, um, because it's hard. And I don't need to kind of rehash on what we've all gone through collectively in our own personal journeys the last 14 months or so. 
But my gosh, some of the magic of getting work done is just, just like the water cooler talk or walking to the food truck to get a burrito and, and really like part of managing teams and, and orgs and connecting people is those relationships. And when you're on Zoom or Google Meets all the time, it's like, we're here for this meeting. We're going to do this one thing. This one thing has been complete. Next, do it again. And it gets so sterile and so functional that um, some of these casual things that you just hear in the office or that you share with people, you're like, oh, that project's going on. Have you talked to Robbie? We should probably connect that. So we've had to think a lot about that, that and burnout and kind of fatigue and depressions and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, and understanding like, you know, uh, people's mental health and, and focusing on that. So long story short, a lot of my time in thinking um, and, and the leadership team I work with been on that. And to be frank, I've had my own struggles throughout the process, right? Look at me, I'm in an office. It's amazing. Um, but you know, the working 14 hours a day because your desk is walking distance from your bed and you don't have a commute, right? Um, and making sure we have those boundaries is important. But as a startup CMO, you know, Boundaries are an interesting word, right? Because I live and breathe and I'm so passionate about what I do that I'm always on, right? But so I have to like, so we've done all sorts of different stuff from a culture perspective of like headspace memberships um, and, you know, forced days off for mental health, uh, you know, wellness and, and trying to set expectations and lead by example of don't slack after 6 p.m. Simple things, but yeah, um, it has been a huge part of my job. Connecting the teams has, has been um, another big part of the job. And we found at first a lot of new extra meetings we didn't need. And then we figured it out over time. Right. Um, and, and kind of, we're getting better at it. Uh, we had a year to figure it out. Um, but I'll tell you, there's still something very magic about, I had the chief product officer in here yesterday, um, with my CEO and we just made magic for two hours, just solving some problems, just without an agenda. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, which would just be totally unacceptable on Zoom. Like if anything, yeah. I feel like what everyone's talked about is that Zoom has made meetings shorter because most 30-minute <laughs> in-person meetings could probably be truncated to, uh, sorry, most one-hour in-person feels more like a 20 to 30-minute Zoom because to your point, yeah. you miss all of the, the banter and some of the, the happenstance. Yeah, and just some of the casual like things you hear about people's lives um, that help you with your relationships with them or projects that are important to them that you realize you could help them with or that your team could help them with, you know? Yeah. And how, what's it been like sort of on the the flip side of it, right? You've got everything that's happening personally, you know, with, with all of your teams and, and all of that. And at the same time, you've got your consumer who is going through it with you and transforming yep. so rapidly, like without being too dramatic, probably, you know, the most evolution that we've seen in memorable history within a short period of time. How yeah. have you been like keeping the pulse of what's happening? How have you stayed close to your consumer? Great question. I mean, we think about this every day, all day. And like part of a good marketer um, is always thinking this way. I'd say a lot of the historic data we have and the trends and the understanding of what's important and, you know, cultural cues, sadly, we've kind of like had to throw out the door right? Because it's a new new, right? Seasonality, what seasonality? Everything's different now. Every holiday is different now that people are getting on planes because they're vaccinated. So, you know, I, typically we have a really nice cadence of, you know, user interviews and user testing and qualitative. Um, we have quite a bit of email feedback that we solicit in different stages of the experiences, but there's, there's, there's a lot more to it than that, right? Even just thinking about the messaging we have on television, 
right? We had one television commercial early in the pandemic where our CEO for fun, you know, was the insurance angel flying around, you know, bringing you insurance comparisons and savings. It was ridiculous. People were dying. We couldn't run that creative, right? And, and so we didn't want to seem tone deaf. Right. And then, you know, when the pandemic was happening, thinking about, hey, look, we help you save on a mandated purchase and in insurance. We help you keep the same coverage, but find a better deal from alternative providers. Um, that's a resonant message when people don't know what's going on with the economy and people are losing their jobs. Right. Um, and so we found trying to lean into the pandemic messaging started to get people upset. And so we were very thoughtful about testing this stuff and then getting quick market feedback and pivoting quickly with the messages in market. I think we tried not to monopolize on it too, right? We saw tailwinds from people wanting to save money, but we don't want to be greedy. We want to make sure that we're there in service of the customer. And so paying attention to it. So the normal lines of the communication that most brands have, right? Email, surveys, NPS, all that stuff, um, qualitative, but we listened to it different and reacted different. And, and I think it's a huge part of our day-to-day, um, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. And I, I remember listening to you talk a lot about, you know, what you've been doing with television. Can you tell me a little bit about how you approached digital channels and like what the role of things like social media were for you last year and, you know, moving forward? Yeah, yeah. Do you mean in relation to pandemic or just how we're thinking about how I think about them in, in general, post-pandemic, et cetera? Yeah, more the latter. I think just yeah, yeah. how you're, you know, I think one of the things yeah. that I've heard pretty consistently is many CMOs have really upped their game on how they're thinking about some of these digital channels because the consumer yeah. was still stuck at home and was maybe yeah. spending a little more time. So, yeah, how, how is that yeah. impacting your practice? Yeah, we have seen um, dramatic shifts in media mix and media usage from the consumer for the last six months, right? We leaned into television viewership because we were sitting at home watching the news all day, right? And we saw, you know, amazing performance, right? But the television um, market, or at least linear and traditional cable, has seen dramatic decline in viewership as the world opens up. But guess what? The rates haven't corrected because it's a supply and demand world. And when you buy the way I buy, it's a little bit more scatter remnant, right? Because I'm a startup and I buy you know, direct response type inventory. Um, you're not guaranteed uh, eyeballs. You buy on a you know projected CPM and, and those eyeballs aren't there. And so for me, I'm in insurance, home and auto insurance. It's a very offline messaging world where you see Geico and Progressive and all these players all the time on TV. TV and radio was a big part of my mix. It wasn't the biggest part of my mix, but it was a big part of my mix. One big thing that we did immediately, um, I have been just a naysayer on streaming and OTT. I've been like, ah, it's much more expensive CPM. It's a, it's not the same audience. Linear is is where it's at. You know, cable TV, the reach is there. There's this, you know, seventy billion dollar industry, whatever it is. And I grew up a, a media buyer as my first job and a TV buyer, so I'm biased, right? Yeah, and guess you get what I, all right. Yeah. Yeah. But then you look at the pandemic accelerated adoption of streaming, like two to five years ahead of where it was going, right? And things are changing dramatically. And, and with what I told you, what's going on with linear, guess what? I flipped the script. I'm now OTT and streaming heavy and much lighter on linear because I can't. Like the performance is degraded on cable, not because my brand's less resonant. There's less eyeballs and the rates haven't changed. Therefore, the math doesn't add up in streaming and OTT. It's more expensive, but guess what? That's a CPM and it's a guaranteed CPM. 
And so the eyeballs are at least guaranteed. So there's something powerful about the simplicity of like deliverability and digital. Mm. Right. And it's like a weird thing to say. Right. But it's true. And so we've seen dramatic performance increases by shifting budget there on the digital side. Same thing. Right. We have dramatically pushed forward into the digital space. What we're doing because we're insurance is more of a um, lower CPM strategy and finding our consumers there um, kind of emulating what we used to do on TV um, as well as going back to the channels that we kind of didn't push harder on um, because the media mix is changing. People are out and about. People are on their phones. People are still consuming media. It's just now figuring out the new, new, you know? And were you buying, you know, when you talked about shifting from sort of scatter to, you know, the streaming uh, buyers, were you buying on a more targeted basis or was it just the fact that you knew that you were in fact going to, you know, get the reach that you thought you were buying? You know, t- traditionally, when you layer on more targeting, the more expensive it gets. And right. when you're when you're buying, um, you know, direct response, you want the lowest CPM possible. So I tiptoed into it, less targeted, mm-hmm. but it was good enough for me then to bring targeting on. So it's some OTT players. Um, I'm bringing on insurance interest, right, which is using some third party data sets, et cetera, and so forth, which I pay slightly more for. So for me, it's just just like a digital medium. OTT is layer on more layers of targeting to see if the CPM incre- uh, incremental shift up warrants in performance. And so I think we went broad and now in Hulu, we're doing, you know, X uh, audience within, um, you know, Y verticals of types of shows. I think we're doing like Hulu drama, right? Instead of Hulu ROS, we're doing, you know, Tremor OTT insurance seekers, right? We, but it, we tiptoed there, right? And my journey was like, Cable, old school DR to OTT, really broad, um, but lots of different players. And then now I'm starting to go micro and it's working. And how are you thinking of, or is it just a separate strategy for how you're thinking about just brand marketing in more gen, in more general terms? You know, I take a unique approach. When I was at Dollar Shave Club, we had, you know, $100 million ad budget and people didn't know it was a direct response. I was there. Who knows what their budget is now? I've been gone quite a while. I was there a couple of years before we sold and then through the sale to Unilever. People didn't know it was a direct response portfolio that don't know marketing. They're like, oh, your CEO is so funny. Your commercials are so flat, right? But behind the scenes, me and my, my partner, a guy named Brian, were, were managing this portfolio like a precision DR machine. Um, and so for me, I'm a brand thinker, but I think that there's no one person that wants to spend the dollar that's not accountable. And so that term that started popping up a couple of years ago, brand response, is something that I've been using for a long, long time. And so for me, I have top funnel television. I have you know car toppers on taxis. I've got all sorts of stuff that is not performance media, but I have a portfolio approach. Just like that old marketing funnel you saw in school, what's creating the demand, what's capturing the demand. And so for me, I think of brand in the same portfolio and put it in the same P&L forecast and think about how accountable do I hold the channel um, or what do I do in a certain channel to kind of drive that um, consideration and uh, demand to capture it. Um, So I kind of didn't answer you directly, but you know, the, the short summary of what I just said is uh, brand and performance to me, I, I think the same. I think of it as marketing. And I think yeah. as you scale and hit diminishing returns in one approach, you have to open up, right? So for me and T, it's been two years for Gabby. As we think about broadening, it inherently gets more efficient when you go from spending this to that, right? And so you almost have to think about brand and you measure differently, right? Pre and post, or you do kind of um, awareness and consideration shifts with aided um, you have to put that stuff into play as you start to grow and evolve. 
But does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And does that mean, you know, given, you know, given you sort of melding both sides pretty tightly, does that yeah. mean you skip some of the steps that maybe um, more traditional approaches do, which is like, this is my consumer profile and her name is Vanessa and she brushes her hair at 10 a.m. And she yeah. is, like, do you think that yeah. way when you're profiling yeah. the consumer or are yeah. you sort of always yeah. kind of bringing, yeah. Uh, I used to be a media planner for 10 years that I used to make all those slides, right? She wakes up in the morning and she brushes her teeth and she's got, you know, 92.7 on in the radio in the bathroom. And then she opens the wall street journal. No, um, I think those personas, um, no, but personas as a business, like what I did is a big brand exercise for my current business and said, who are we building for? But who else can we catch? And right. So we have three personas in this kind of like expanding circle and we're building for this guy, Ben. Uh, and I won't tell you about Ben, but then there's Ben and then there's Alice and then there's Deb. Right. And, and kind of it's, it's how big these circles are. And so we appeal and make pay attention to the outer circle segments, but we build for one um, because my big belief is you can't be everything to anyone. And if you try to be, you're going to fail miserably, um, but you have to be aware. And so in media planning and such, yeah, absolutely. We use uh, profiles and personas, not the way you're talking, a right. little bit more broad macro governing, right? Yeah, and it's. I think that that speaks to who you want to speak to. But I, I mean, there's always, I think traditionally there has been a big disconnect anyway, because you'd have this really detailed consumer profile and then someone would look at it and go, okay, women 18 to 35, you know? So yeah. I think there is a gap. Yeah. There, yeah. there is a gap to bridge where these days we're using segmentation and analytics, right? So I have five cuts of an insurance shopper and I know the most valuable one, the second most valuable one and the least valuable one. And I can take those attributes and I know how to find them in digital or even in OTT. So there is a big move by me the last couple, you know, last year or so of, how do I get more like these people? And that's different, right? So more of the media targeting and, and product building is those personas I mentioned. But then when I think about media deploying funds, it's about segmentation mm. of the buyer and trying to find more of the people that are worth 40% more that, you know, have more assets and they have more to insure um, and they stay longer. They're, they're stickier customers. So, you know, it's all LTV driven type of an approach. And they're the ones that appreciate the experience we're delivering in my current business as well. Yeah, understood. So um, so shifting gears a little. So as yep. you think about your career in its entirety today, I know there's plenty to come. I'm not that old. Yeah. <laughs> what do you view as the most influential decision that you've made professionally? Oh, man. I want to quickly tell you five things. But I think the most influential thing... Um, I'm going to give you two answers. One is I'll allow it. One is becoming more mature and realizing what's important to me um, and what's important for my career. I wanted to be rich and famous when I was young. Who cares? No one's going to remember me for Dollar Shave Club in 10 years. And so really focusing on what fulfills me is nurturing companies, building teams and disrupting stuff on behalf of the consumer. I'm almost 40. It took me till now to figure that out. Before it was just, I want to make the most amount of money possible. And I want to be a badass individual contributor. And I want to be famous. Who cares about that stuff? There's never enough money, right? Um, and I just want to do some cool stuff on behalf of the customer and build some great teams and work with awesome people. The most influential thing I did in my career is, you know, took a leap to get out of agencies and went to a really, really kind of direct response set of brands, um, Pro Flower, Sherry's Berries, 
And my friends all laughed at me and said, why would you go there? And for me, it was all career chess. And so the most influential thing for me was really trying to think about where I wanted to go. I got a master's and said, I'm getting out of agencies. So really thinking about my career evolution and planning it and having intended choice. Um, and look, people don't hand you anything. You got to work for it. But timing, relationships, and network matter. Those three variables, I think, were the most influential thing for me and how I started to progress in my career. I still have a lot to do and I've barely done anything. But you know, there, has been, there have been some successes. And then the third answer, even though you asked for one, is the most influential thing was I had some feedback when I was early in my career as a VP at Dollar Shave Club. They said, Nick, you're an individual contributor badass. You run circles around everyone else. But now that you lead a big team, you're suffocating us. You're answering our emails for us. You're talking in meetings before we do. And my team told me this. And I was like, oh, wow. What makes a great leader is not what makes a good individual contributor. And so I really took that as a 360 moment and flipped it and really spent now the rest, like half of my, my days thinking about how do I nurture these teams and empower them? Because all these numbers I want to hit, if I, I can't hit them myself, but if I can teach these people, empower them and set them up for success and controlled risk, guess what? The numbers work. And so kind of the most influential thing to me was realizing I'm not that big of a deal, but what I can do is actually nurture these people and give them empowerment and coach them behind the scenes. And that's when, what has unlocked my business success. So my last three companies where you've seen up and to the right is me building those cultures is not me because of my playbook. It's, it's really unlocking all those things. And practically speaking, what mm -hmm. advice do you have for the type A overachieving individual contributor who wants to make yeah. that jump, but is like, everything will fail yeah. if, if I yeah. do that? Like, how do yeah. I, how do you, how do you actually get that done? Controlled risk um, and coaching, and it doesn't happen overnight, but if you have um, something that you don't need to own, give it to that person and coach them. Don't answer the email form. If you want to answer the email and you have a big, strong opinion, side email that person and say, hey, Sarah, I'm going to let you lead. Here's what I think, but it's your call, right? And then if it's something so high risk that you're going to lose your job over or the board's involved, like maybe have Sarah wing you um, and learn and tell her, I'm going to lead because it's high risk, but I want you to see this thing. Um, I think realizing that you're not the big deal, what you can make of your team can make you, a, you successful, um, is, is a really important thing to think about. Try to kind of throw your ego out the door and think about wisdom that you've learned in your career and think about teaching and coaching. And remember, if you do a good job, you don't need credit. You're running the team. Give them the credit because you win as your organization and you run the organization. No one gives a shit if you set up that copy or if you, it was your idea to start that channel or if that was your funnel test. Who cares, right? In the end, no one's going to remember that. They're going to look at the success of the company and the team, right? Oh, I love it. Um, last one for you. Mm -hmm. What are you most excited about as you sort of stare out to the rest of the year and into the new year? I'm excited about um, figuring out the new norm. I get bored easy. And the good news, I'm not bored in this job. Um, but there's going to be so much to figure out with how consumers buy, how consumers travel, what consumers are doing, and like how to build relationships in this post-vaccine world. I'm excited. And it's going to be tough. And I'm going to have holidays where I spend a bunch of money and it just fails because no one was you know, engaging with media because we were all traveling for the first time this summer. Um, I'm excited to figure all that out. Like, I like a challenge and I think we're all up uh, for a big challenge this next 12 months in a good way. I think we're all happy about the challenge though, from a personal perspective. You know what I mean? Well, being able to get out in the world, right, is, is a much better challenge than sort of learning to, to sit on your hands. Nick, incredible to have you. Thank you so much. That was a really, really terrific chat. I appreciate you being here. 
You got it. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Mark.